All right, let's jump back into John chapter 13. Um, so we're in the upper room. Uh, this is, they're celebrating uh, what we call the Lord's Supper. And uh, there's not the kind of detail in John 13 that you find in the synoptics about the supper itself. Um, but we have this focus on Jesus washing the disciples' feet and telling them and, of course, us that he did that as an example. He wants us to serve, right? And then he focuses on the reality that Judas is going to uh, betray him. He knows that this is in the works. And he says there's somebody there at the table that's going to betray him. Uh, Peter whispers to John, ask him who it is. John's closest to Jesus, so he just leans back and says, Lord, who is it? Jesus dips a piece of bread in the common, the communal sauce, and hands it to Judas. Prior to doing that, immediately prior to doing that, he tells John, it is the one that I hand this to, right? We find in the history of the Middle East, and this continues to our day, that offering bread like that, or today they'll offer a little ball of meat, is a sign of friendship, okay? Um, it's, a, it's a way to honor someone. When the, the, the most honored person or the person that is serving offers that in the midst of the meal now, it's an honor. And, you know, you can kind of see how that would be conveyed today, right? You go to somebody's house and they offer you something, right? Um, they're honoring you. They're showing you friendship. So it just really shows how dark Judas had become that he's willing to take that. And then Jesus says to him, it says, and then Satan entered into him. It's the only time in all of scripture that it says Satan himself entered into anybody, okay? And you know, in the synoptics, Jesus deals with demon possession on a regular basis. We don't find that in John's gospel, but we do find this and it's after Satan has entered into him that Jesus says, now what you do, what you're going to do, do quickly. Judas gets up and walks out of the room and the last verse that we were at last week, John 13, 30 says, and it was night, okay? Uh, I'll just read verse 30. So after receiving the piece of bread, he left immediately and it was night. Um, John is very factual, but he's also... Um, very fond of symbols, and um, the factual reality is that it was literally night. They'd been sitting there that long. But this is talking about the, um, the, uh, the, how, how things were as far as the, the spirituality, if you will, of the room, right? It was night. Darkness had descended. The betrayer was off to do what he had intended to do. Um, and uh, Jesus has referred to himself again and again as the light of the world. So it's very interesting to see that John says, and it was night. Now, that doesn't mean that the light is not shining, right? It's night right now, but is it light in here? Yeah. It is light in here because we have light on. So this doesn't mean that the light of the world had gone out, but that it was very, very dark in the world at that point in time. All right. So now we're going to look at verses 31 through 38. And that's uh, what I intend to cover tonight. That will close out chapter 13. So they're still in the upper room. Jesus is continuing now that Judas has left. Therefore, when he had left, that is when Judas had left, Jesus said, now is the son of man glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and will glorify him immediately. 
Little children, I am still with you a little longer. You will look for me, and just as I said to the Jews, and remember when he says Jews in John, he's really primarily referring to the, the Judeans, those that lived uh, in Jerusalem and uh, its precinct. Okay, these were the the most religious, I guess you would say, of the the people. He said, uh, "Just as I said to the Jews, now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. I am giving you a new commandment that you love one another, just as I have loved you. That you lo- that you also love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. If you, <laughs> I'm sorry." Uh, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you, ha- if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow later. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you right now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus replied, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, a rooster will not crow until you deny me three times, right? So, what would you assume Jesus' response would be to Judas' departure and, and imminent betrayal? Because this is in the wake of Judas showing, yes, I am going to do this. Okay, It's very possible that Judas hadn't really fully decided that he was going to betray Jesus. The plan was in place, but maybe he was waffling. Okay, Some commentators are you know, willing to go that far. And one commentator that I read said that he may have taken this, uh, this bread as confirmation that he was doing the right thing. Now, I've made the case in a play that I wrote some years ago that um, Judas wasn't just being evil. He was certainly being selfish, but he was likely trying to force Jesus' hand, to force Jesus into fighting back to force Jesus into being the Messiah that they all wanted him to be, which is the Messiah that even many Orthodox Jews today expect Messiah to be, and that is a, a, a king, um, a deliverer, right? Like the, the judges in the book of Judges. It's kind of interesting that they're called judges because that was very, a very uh, comparatively small part of what they did the, they are recognized, the judges are recognized as military deliverers. It, in each situation, the Jewish people, prior to having a king, were being overrun and overwhelmed by some outside nation. And God would raise up a military leader, right? A military deliverer um, who would then serve as a, a judge for uh, various conflicts that people had and so forth, which was common. Um, this is what they expected of Jesus. They expected him to rise up and overthrow the Roman Empire or at least overthrow Rome's um, uh, power uh, over Israel, okay, to push Rome out of Israel. Kind of like what these folks in Gaza thought that they were doing with all the evil uh, that they perpetrated against Israel. They thought that they were going to force Israel to leave the land. And that's, they're, they're not satisfied, okay? Uh, this is uh, not Hamas. This is a, an age-old, as I've said uh, numerous times, an age-old conflict uh, between uh, Arab and Hebrew, right? goes all the way back to Ishmael and Isaac, right? Um, but there is, among the overwhelming majority of 
those that call themselves Palestinians, there's no, they, they wouldn't be satisfied with a two-state solution. They want Israel out. They think it's their land, right? So this is the idea um, that the, the Jews, this is their historic heritage going back um, thousands of years before the current residents that call themselves Palestinians were living there. Um, they, uh, they wanted Rome to have no more power over them. Well, Judas and the disciples, for that matter, the other disciples, saw the amount of persuasion, powerful persuasion, the the miracles that Jesus worked, the, how he had people just eating out of the hand, uh, you know, eating out of his hand. In chapter six, um, if you remember, early on in chapter six, when Jesus um, performed the miracle of the feeding of the five thousand, it says he withdrew from them because they wanted to make him king by force. So imagine Judas is that sort of person, okay? Um, what he did was horrible, there's no question. But it was calculated. It wasn't just, I'm gonna be mean to you. I hate you. It was more, I wanna be a part of something big. I wanna be a part of you know someone who is going to take power and is going to overthrow Rome. And they, they really, they all thought that way. If you uh, look at the synoptics in particular, um, the most common argument that the disciples had was which one of them was the greatest, right? J James and John's mother came to Jesus and said, I want you to do something for me. And Jesus said, what? I want you to let one of my sons sit on your right and one on your left in your kingdom. I mean, they were all planning to be in power. And that's why when Jesus washed everybody's feet, it just completely turned everything upside down for them. Jesus kept talking about suffering and death and telling you know, them that he was going to die and three days later that he was going to rise. They just assumed this was symbolic. This had to be a metaphor. They just could not understand how that would work out. Um, so I really think, um, and you know, this is my hypothesis here. I don't know what was in Judas's mind, uh, but I really think that the possibility is that he was seeking to force Jesus' hand, that if he, you know, really put Jesus in a position where they were going to arrest him, right, and they were going to accuse him of things that he didn't do, that he would rise up, but he didn't because that wasn't God's plan. So back to the question, um, what would you think Jesus' response would be to Judas' departure and his imminent betrayal. Anger, hurt, sadness, relief that the traitor was no longer among the faithful. In the natural, someone might expect Jesus to fight back. Um, he would maybe fight, was fighting back emotionally. You would, you would think if he was like, you know, somebody like me, he'd be fighting back a, a, just a, a sense of failure. Wow, you know, this guy's been with me for three years. And now, not only does he turn his back on me, because Jesus had a bunch of people that turned their back on him, right? Remember John 6, 66, it says, and many of the disciples turned away and no longer followed him. So he had plenty of people that did that. In fact, Jesus, on a regular basis, was telling them, unless you um, take up your cross and follow me, you're not worthy to be one of my disciples. He, he didn't want people just following him around, right? He wanted disciples that really wanted um, to 
follow him and become more like him, all right? Um, so Judas' betrayal would seem to indicate that everything was falling apart. That's why I said, you know, in the natural, you would assume that maybe Jesus would be fighting back some sort of sense of failure, right? Um, it would seem to indicate then that everything was falling apart. And this would deepen when all of the disciples abandoned him and Peter denied him. Judas betrayed him. Every single disciple abandoned him except for the author of this gospel who followed him at a distance, okay? And then Peter, who, like this disciple, followed him at a distance for a while, denied that he even knew him. How would that make you feel? You have no supporters left in the world. I was just reading a bit out of 2 Timothy, and uh, at the end of Paul's life, he had the same thing happen. He was, uh, initially, he was under house arrest in Rome, awaiting a, a trial before Caesar, which didn't necessarily mean he would actually appear before Nero himself, who would have been the Caesar in power at the time. But if you read Second Timothy, which is the last letter that Paul wrote, everybody's abandoned him, all right? Uh, he talks about a fellow named Demas, uh, on three different occasions in, in his letter. And this has been a supporter of him. And, you know, he says, and Demas, having loved this world, has left me. How do you feel when you are holding up the weight of the world on your shoulders, right? And you can feel like that at times. You know, if you're, uh, you're uh, in a position of responsibility, you can feel like all the responsibility is on you and nobody, nobody cares, okay? Um, I just want you to understand that Jesus was a real person, real human, right? He was the son of God. He was doing the will of God, but he had feelings just like you do, right? So what sustained him through that? Um, well, he immediately says, now is the son of man glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, you could really say since God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him, that is glorify Jesus, in himself and will glorify him immediately. So rather than seeing this as failure, right, and feeling shame, he is pronouncing that this is going to result in great glory. He's already looking forward to that. By faith, Jesus realized that victory was already accomplished even though he had not yet endured the cross. That's faith, right? When you have faith, you're looking at something that has not yet happened as though it has already happened. It's a done deal. Now, that doesn't mean that you know the, the actual outcome of the particular circumstances, but you are so confident that this is going to take place, that your hope, what you hope is going to take place, that you act as though it already has taken place. Think about that. That's faith. Faith is not, well, I hope so. You know, I'm just, uh, just going to wait, wait and see. That's not faith. Okay? Faith is sight. It is sight without physical sight, right? Um, the Apostle Paul said, we walk by faith and not by sight, right? Um, First Corinthians, uh, excuse me, Second Corinthians 5, 7. And then um, we have this idea or this definition of faith that's given in Hebrews. Um, 
Hebrews uh, chapter 11, verse 1 says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Where does that assurance come from? This is just well up from within you and you just say, no, I just know it's going to happen. I believe it, I believe it, I believe it. And so it is so. No, the assurance comes from the, uh, comes from the Lord. The assurance comes from the Holy Spirit, okay? The assurance comes down from him. The conviction that it is going to be so comes from the Spirit. And you walk as though it has already happened, even though it hasn't yet happened. And this is what Jesus is expressing here. He's expressing this victory that has not yet occurred, much less, you know, he hasn't even entered into the fullness of the suffering yet. In that moment, Christ accepted the Father's will that he is the Son of Man. And by the way, Jesus refers to himself as the Son of God um, most often in John's gospel. In the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, he almost invariably refers to himself as the Son of Man. Well, Son of Man goes back to Daniel's prophecy in Daniel 7, 13, and 14 that refers to one like a Son of Man, and it's the Messiah. So he's, when he calls himself the Son of Man, he's pointing back to Daniel and helping people understand, yes, he did come to be Messiah. But more than that, and I know that might sound ridiculous to say more than being Messiah, but I guess it is better for us to understand that a big part of the definition of being Messiah from Jesus' perspective was not this military leader that's going to overthrow the Roman Empire or throw Rome's rule off of uh, Israel. No, as the Son of Man, he came to represent every human being. He took all of us into himself. He represented you and represents you if you put faith in him before God, right? He's the perfect man. He's the man that all of us are supposed to be, right? The human that all of us are supposed to be. That is what uh, that title, son of man, also uh, embraces, okay? So in that moment, Christ accepted the Father's will that he, as the son of man, and thus the representative of all people, would die in place of every person on earth. The Apostle Paul writes in Philippians 2.8, he humbled himself by becoming obedience to death, even death on a cross. So he was ready to take the elevator all the way down to the sub-basement, not just to die, but to die the most shameful, horrific death, okay? The death that demonstrates the depravity of sin. Jesus became our sin on the cross, Right? Um, He who knew no sin became our sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him, right? And crucifixion represents the height of pain and the depth of shame. In spite of this, Jesus would be glorified in and through it. He reversed the shame of the cross. His death canceled the curse of death, and his resurrection proved this. Christ's suffering empowers the believer to endure and overcome pain, suffering, and sin. So he didn't just do that for us. He did that as us. And when I recognize that I am in Christ, right, and this is what baptism is supposed to symbolize. Buried with Christ in baptism. We put you all the way under the water. Raised with Christ to walk in newness of life. 
that I am in Christ on the cross, that as he died, I die to what? To sin, to the world, to self. That's how you overcome temptation. Okay, whatever it is, you first have to admit it's sin. See, today we're in a world where people just dismiss everything. Well, that's not sin. That's not sin. That's not wrong. That's not wrong. That's not wrong. My truth, my truth. You know, I don't believe that that's wrong. I don't believe what the Bible says about that. But it doesn't change the reality. It doesn't change the fact. Sin is sin. Wrong is wrong. God created the world. There is a way things are supposed to be. There's a way you're supposed to be. You can't just make it up as you go along, and that's what people are doing, right? And just, you know, we have all of these voices that are speaking from the past, the present, right? And they're, they're telling us, no, 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 you know, you be the author of your story, and you, you know, you invent it as you go along and so forth. But there's a way we're supposed to be. And when we step outside of that, that's sin. Sin is failure, right? For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Sin is failure to be what God created you to be. That can be in a little way or in a big way, okay? Jesus died on the cross as that, as you. And so the way I overcome sin, whatever it is, is I first of all confess, you know what? That is wrong. Lord, I know that what I've done is wrong. I know that what I'm doing is wrong. I know that what I'm into is wrong, right? I confess it. Now, how do I overcome it? Especially if it's something that's rather addictive, okay? Um, well, first of all, I recognize that if I'm in Christ, not only is that not who I'm supposed to be, that's not who I am. I just want you to grab a hold of that. There's a new you. If anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. Old things are passed away and all things have become new. You need to realize who you really are. If you're in Christ, if you've confessed, admitted that sin is sin and that you have committed it and you turn your back on it and you turn your face toward Christ, that's repentance turning from, that's faith turning toward. And I open my heart, I let him come inside and give me that new birth that Jesus told uh, Nicodemus about in John chapter three. Then I've been given a new nature. There's a new me, there's a new you. And you may not feel like that, okay? Maybe it just feels like it's just, you know, Maybe you felt like that at one point in time or, you know, when you got to the point, if you've come to the point of, of receiving Christ. But, you know, the world is just really good at grinding us down, right? And just throwing dirt and garbage over that new me. And I can just start looking at everything around me and thinking, well, I don't see it. I don't see the change. I did at one point, but I don't now. It's kind of like... <clears throat> We're blessed that um, they come and pick up our garbage. Isn't that great? Okay. I mean, I, I thank God for sanitation workers, or I should thank God for sanitation workers, but I really do. I've known several of them. And, oh man, it's just, it's wonderful. Okay. But have you ever been to the dump? Okay. So in Garland, it's like you can drive all the way to the dump if you've got like really monstrous, huge stuff or whatever. But you can go to the transfer station which is just right up the road up here, right? Um, it's, in fact, it's right by where my, uh, where my storage is. It's just right around the corner, which may be symbolic of the Lord saying, okay, now take all that stuff 
that's in storage and drive it two blocks and shove it off, right? But invariably, when I go to the transfer station, I am only there for maybe, maybe 10 minutes. Open the back of my truck, shove stuff out. I mean, but the smell is just, right? My truck smells like the transfer station when I leave, man. Right? Somehow it gets in there. Okay, my clothes smell like the transfer station. Do you understand what I'm getting at here? If we spend all of our time at the dump, we start thinking, well, maybe I just belong here. Man, no, you got to recognize who you are. Maybe you got to make a trip through the dump to, you know, offload some stuff, but get out of there, right? Take a shower, say, you know what? No, I'm a new creation in Christ. I don't have to be bogged down by this. Well, I'm Irish, we fight. We're just violent. That's just the way we are, you know. He said, you know, you could say, you know, I identify as and this and this and this and this, okay? Uh, what is it? And this is along the lines of the, you know, all of us Irish folks are, are fighters um, or violent or drunks, you know? Okay. Well, I'm Irish, I just drink a lot. Okay, well, a lot of Irish people do drink quite a bit, okay? But I, I keep saying this little meme uh, that pops up on Facebook um, and there's a little girl that's a redhead and she says, of course I'm difficult to deal with. Don't you know I have red hair? You know, but that's this idea, right? I identify with something like that. Now I know that's small. It's just meant to be an illustration, but you know, you can look at your heritage. You can look at your family. Um, you can look at the way you were raised and you can just say, you know what? I, that's just the way I am. No, if you're in Christ, you're a new creation, Right. Hopefully that's for you because that wasn't even what I intended to talk about tonight. Um, Has there been a time in your life when it seemed like everything was falling apart? Again, that's what it could have seemed like. It it appeared like that. On the outside, this, this great leader was, you know, apparently at the point of death on the cross, a failure. Has there been a time in your life when it seemed like everything was falling apart? How did you handle that? Have you ever been betrayed by a close friend like Jesus was, right? This is one of his inner circle here, right? Not the closest inner circle, right? That was Peter, James, and John. But guess what? Peter, the guy that he chose to be the main leader, denied him. So have you ever been betrayed by a close friend? How did you handle that, okay? Well, God can cancel your failure, And he can take the worst circumstances and turn them around. He can take the betrayal of a friend and turn it into a blessing. What is impossible with humans is possible with God. That was, you know, we find that in Luke. I think it's 137, I want to say. The angel Gabriel visits uh, Mary. Uh, She's a young girl. She's she's betrothed, engaged to be married. Um, Unlike today, where couples just sleep together before they were married, and it's just normal, that was not acceptable in any way in Jewish society, right? So she was a virgin. She never slept with a man. She certainly not slept with her fiancé. And so this angel appears before her and says, you know, that uh, she's going to have a child. And she says, well, how is this going to be? Okay, It says the Holy Spirit will overshadow you, okay? The power of the Most High uh, will bring this about. And then the angel says, 
nothing shall be impossible with God. So I don't know what you're facing right now. But I know that God can get you through it and that nothing is impossible with God. And it can be even the smallest things, paying your bills. Last year in January, we made it all the way through COVID and the shutdown and everything else. But last year in January, it was like the, I think it was the end of January, we didn't have enough money to pay the rent on this building. I didn't know what was going to happen. I was pouring everything I could into it. I know that, you know, our main people are doing what they can do, but we just, we didn't have it. It just seemed impossible. So, you know, uh, there was one gift that came in that made up the difference and we went ahead and paid that month's rent. But then I was like, I don't know what we're going to do. February is a short month. How are we going to do this? Here we are. It's a year later and we're still doing it, right? So what I'm saying is, you know, it can seem like it's impossible for you, like a health challenge, right? Um, all of these things can seem impossible, but here's Jesus as the example that even when it appeared that everything was falling apart and that his life was at its lowest ebb, he says what? Now is the son of man glorified and God is glorified in him. Nothing has been fulfilled yet. He hasn't been crucified. He hasn't raised from the dead yet. But he's already saying, no, this is going to result in victory. And so I pray that you will put the same faith in the Father that Jesus did, and you will allow, um, allow him to cancel any failure and shortcoming or trouble that you are dealing with right now. Um, and then let's look at this idea of uh, him being betrayed. Um, we have to forgive those who have caused problems in our lives. We've got to trust our good and loving father. We've got to trust his providential plan. He causes all things to work together for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. So you can say, no, this person ruined my life. Okay. This person, you know, did something terrible to me. And it may have been something really terrible. But God is the God who takes the worst things and even the things that people have done to you and turns that around into great glory. God causes all things to work together for the good. So when something like that happens, we've just got to trust the Lord, okay? So I'm, I've got all these illustrations about this building um, because it's 127, almost 128 years old. It has lots of problems, um, we've been dealing with problems with our HVAC units for three years now, okay? Uh, the landlords installed two new units in the building, and the one new unit that was installed has continuously failed since it was installed. We have now dumped close to $1,500 into that unit, keeping it running. And we're going to have to come up with another twelve dollars to $1,500 before it gets hot, because the AC is not working on the east end of the building up there, right? But thankfully, we don't need to use the AC right now. Okay, we're good to go. Um, so there's a new unit down here. Guess what? Last week, uh, I started smelling this 
not a gas smell, rotten egg smell, okay, because it is a gas furnace, but it was a smell like acetone, right? Like, um, I mean, you know, I grew up with my mom and my sister, and I remember the smell of fingernail polish remover. That's what it smelled like. And it started in that hallway, and then it moved out into this room, and then I started smelling it upstairs, I'm like, what in the world is going on? Because I didn't know what it was. I thought, you know, when I first smelled it, I thought somebody spilled something back there, right? Um, so I'm going through all of these things. And then we look, look up online. Um, a fellow that is a benefactor to our church uh, brings his kids to the karate club, um, works in insurance. And he looked it up online and said, well, if your heat exchanger... Apparently, there's something called a heat exchanger if you have a gas furnace. If it's cracked, then it can produce a smell like formaldehyde. Well, I was like, well, this isn't formaldehyde, but maybe it is. Maybe it's something to do with the heater, right, with the gas furnace. And so I call the, the company that has been handling our stuff lately, the, that's been doing our HVAC, and uh, they recommend just turn the, turn the thing off. It's going to, you know, the weather's going to be pretty nice the next several days. Just turn it off, Right. So I did, I turned it off. Guess what? The smell went away. So I was like, okay, then obviously it has something to do with this. But the interesting thing is, I have a tendency to not be happy at all when things don't work. I just think things should work, right? But I had, I just had a sense of confidence that, you know what? I don't know what's going to happen, but I'm just going to trust that the Lord's going to handle this. So I called these guys, they came out um, and, uh, you know, I told them about the problem and they went up on the roof and they patched like this little hole that was up there for some air intake or whatever. And I don't know if that was it, but it's warm in here now, isn't it? And it doesn't smell at all, does it? It did get me to install that right back there, which is a carbon monoxide sensor. All right. So if that thing starts screeching, then stand up and walk out the door. Because <laughs> that means that something's going on. Because it's either natural gas, methane gas, or carbon monoxide will cause that thing to go off. So, hey, in the end, I'm just using this as an example. Because I don't know what you're going through. It might be something big or something small. But you can trust your good and loving father. Amen? Amen. And even when you look at something that's happened with a, you know, a relative or a close friend and there's been some sort of betrayal or whatever, trust that the Lord has this all in hand and he's got a purpose. It doesn't mean that he caused them to hurt you or betray you or anything any more than the Lord caused Judas to do this, okay? Now we get into this very important command here. Jesus said, I am giving you a new commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So this is John 13, 34 and 35. And then Jesus repeats this again in John 15, uh, where he says, um, love one another as I have loved you. Well, Again, we, we have to go to the synoptics to fill out the other things that Jesus did and said because John's focus is, is very narrow. Jesus Christ, Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. 
And by believing these signs that John presents and these words of Jesus that he presents, then you can have life in his name. But the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, present all sorts of other things that Jesus did, right? One of the things was uh, a lawyer came to him and asked him, what's the greatest commandment? Okay, well, he could have gone to the, you know, Jesus could have gone to, you know, the first of the Ten Commandments. What's, what's the first of the Ten Commandments? What does it say? Have no other gods before me. Jesus could have gone to that commandment, right? But no, he went to the Shema in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Hear, O Israel. There's a reason it's called the Shema is that's the Hebrew word for hear, Shemach. Shemach o Israel, right? Hear, O Israel. The Lord our Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, and with all your strength, okay? So that's the greatest commandment. And then Jesus immediately follows it up and says, and the second command, which is like it, is you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Well, Jesus makes that point in time, okay, before he says this, okay? We have to compare the, the time frame of the synoptic. That's found, by the way, in Matthew 22, 37 through 40 or 41, okay? If you want to look it up. Um, and so Jesus is responding and saying that prior to saying this. So how is this a new command? He's already said, love your neighbor as yourself. That's a part of the law. That's Leviticus, okay? Leviticus nineteen eighteen. Well, here's how it's a new command. There is a new comparison. There's a new point of reference. The old point of reference is self. Love your neighbor as yourself, right? Now, when we think of love, we often think of a feeling. And not everybody has positive feelings about themselves, right? Not everybody has a positive feeling right, uh, has a, a healthy sense of self. But it should be pointed out that in Leviticus 19.18, when it says, love your neighbor as yourself, it's talking about how you take care of yourself, okay? Do you eat? Do you sleep? Do you take a shower or a bath or whatever you do, right? Um, do you take care of yourself? Take care of your neighbor as you take care of yourself, okay? But you know what? People don't do that very well sometimes either, do they? Self is a poor referent. It's just the only comparison point of reference that people had, okay? But you have people that do a terrible job of taking care of themselves, and then you have people that think far too highly of themselves. In either case, you're not going to love your neighbor. If you treat yourself poorly, you're likely going to treat those close to you poorly. That's just the way it works, when they get into your inner circle, you start treating them like crap, just like you treat yourself, okay? If you think too highly of yourself, you don't want to love them. You're like, I ain't gonna do that, you know? You move into, you know, narcissism range and sociopathic range, where it's like, you know, other people are just tools for you to get your way sort of thing, okay? Now, when I say you, I'm not talking about you, 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 okay? I could, you know, say one, one thinks this, or one would do this. That's what I'm trying to say there, okay? Okay. Um, this is a new command because the point of reference now is Jesus, okay? Jesus says, love one another, but he doesn't just say love one another. He could have just said love one another, but he wouldn't have said this is a new command then. What did he say? Love one another as what? As I have loved you. 
Now, the, the reference, the comparison is, oh, I may not think too highly of myself. I may have horrible feelings about myself, okay? Or I may think entirely too highly of myself. You know, the Apostle Paul said, don't uh, think more highly of yourself than you ought to think, but think so as to have sound judgment. Or you may have a balanced view of yourself. But the way I am to love my brothers and sisters in Christ is the way Jesus has in fact loved me as demonstrated by his death on the cross for my sins, right? So that means that I am to love other people with, these, uh, with this point of comparison, but also with these emotional resources that Jesus gives me. When you open your life up to Christ and you let him love you, then you have uh, the, the power, I guess you could say, to love other people. If all you're doing is just looking at yourself, right? Then you just, you know, we get easily worn out. I mean, uh, especially people that work, you know, if you work with other people, right? And you just, you know, people can be annoying, <laughs> right? It's like, I'm supposed to love these people? You know, this is why you have, again, all these memes that are like, you know, I love animals, not people, you know? <laughs> you know, I love my dog and about two people type of thing. Well, yeah, it's hard. But when you let Christ love you and love through you, then you've got the resources, right? And by the way, this isn't optional. It's a command, right? When Jesus said, if you love me, do what I command. What's the primary command? Love each other, love each other, love each other. There's two main commands that Jesus wants you to obey. Believe in him as the son of God and love one another. And it starts by loving your brothers and sisters in Christ. That's the first circle, okay? I don't have to worry about self-love. I don't have to worry about loving myself. Jesus didn't say love yourself right? You open yourself up and let him love you. And then the first circle out is not self-love, but it is brothers and sisters in Christ love. Well, in his little letter, which we call 1 John, which I just concluded on Sunday, um, this same John, the beloved disciple, spends time applying this command, love one another even as I have loved you, to his church in Ephesus, Christians must love one another, no exceptions. Here's what John says. I read this in church on Sunday morning, but I'm, gonna, I'm just gonna go ahead and read these. These are three passages from 1 John. Uh, the first passage is 1 John chapter 3, verses 11 through 18. Again, this isn't John's gospel, which we're in right now. This is the little letter that is almost at the very end of the New Testament. John writes, for this is the message which you have heard from the beginning that we are to love one another. Then he gives this example. Not as Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And for what reason did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil, but his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers and sisters. The one who does not love remains in death. Everyone who hates his brother or sister is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life remaining in him. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers and sisters. 
But whoever has worldly goods and sees his brother or sister in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God remain in him? Little children, let's not love with word or tongue, but in deed and truth. Now, chapter 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 12. So he covers this a lot. Beloved, let's love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, because God is love. By this, the love of God was revealed in us that God has sent his only son into the world so that we may live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, the atonement for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God remains in us and his love is perfected in us. And in the same little letter, it only has five chapters. And I'm telling you, all these verses are about the same thing. John was all about this, right? This is 1 John 4, 16 through 21. We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. See how it starts with God's love for us. God is love, repeats it again. And the one who remains in love remains in God and God remains in him. By this, love is perfected with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. Because as he is, that's as Christ is, we also are in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear involves punishment. And the one who fears is not perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If someone says, I love God, and yet he hates his brother or sister, he's a liar. For the one who does not love his brother and sister whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God must also love his brothers and sisters. In the early days of the Roman Empire, that's how they knew who Christians were. They said, how these people love one another. That's how it has to start. But I don't stop there. I don't stop by loving fellow believers. The next level out is to love people in my world who are not Christians. These might be family members. These might be coworkers, right? And once again, this is not affection, not liking everyone, but it means acting in the best interest of others. I was, I was, I keep bumping my head on this thing. I was at Intrinsic earlier today and normally I'm over there and, you know, it's a fairly calm environment and fairly clean. Dude, these guys that I know over there just could not keep the F word out of their mouths, man. It was one after another, after another, after another. And I don't like it. And it made me want to just leave my beer there and walk out the door. But I'm like, what kind of an example is that, right? And I'm just going to kind of be, you know, self-righteous. They, they know. They know. Now, I don't act like, you know, I can't hear a four-letter word or something like that. But it's just like, F this and F that and F and F and F and F. I'm just like, you know what? I'm just, yeah. I got to love those people. Even though I don't like them. I don't like that at all. But I got to love them. Okay, And then it goes all the way up to the enemy. I got to love even my enemies. And again, that takes the resources that only come from Christ and allowing him to love you. Final little passage here and then we're done. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Because earlier he said, 
I, I didn't cover this, but he said just before he told them to love one another, he said, where I'm going, you cannot come. Well, this really bothered Peter. Where are you going? Jesus answered, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow later. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you right now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus replied, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, a rooster will not crow until you deny me three times. And that's exactly what happened, right? Peter ignored Jesus' teaching on the new commandment. He just glossed right over that, right? He thought he loved Jesus. And on a purely human level, he did. He had strong feelings for Jesus. He had strong loyalty to Jesus. But he didn't know himself like Jesus knew him. He didn't know the limitations to his loyalty. And invariably, that limitation is going to stop at self-preservation. Pride and self-preservation. That will keep you from going any further. I've had people, uh, I've been done church work for a long time, and I've had people that were incredible servants. I mean, just amazing. And I just thought, man, these people seem limitless. They're just, you know, they serve and serve and serve, and I just feel like they're wearing themselves out, and they just don't seem to have limits. I'm telling you, everybody does. We're, we're not God. We're not limitless beings, right? But the only way you can get to this place where you overcome limits like that is to be in Christ. And Peter was all about Christ, right? But not until the other side of the crucifixion and resurrection was he able to actually follow Jesus to death. What we know of Peter is that he did follow Jesus in martyrdom and death. He was crucified. But when the Roman, he wasn't a Roman citizen. So Paul wasn't crucified. Paul was beheaded, right? I mean, he chopped his head off with an ax because it's horrible, it's gruesome, but it's instant. Crucifixion is not. It's horrible, Right? Peter said, I am not worthy to die like my Lord. So the Romans, being cruel as they are, crucified him upside down. I don't know how long it took him to die, okay? But, yeah, he did eventually follow his Lord, okay? He didn't know how much his love for Jesus would be tested at this point. And he didn't know that it would be proven to be uh, a failure. And why? Because Peter, like all of us, loved himself more than others, even his Lord. As I said, pride and self-preservation trumped dying for Jesus. I would be no better, but thankfully, Jesus changed Peter, and he will do the same for you and me. Amen? Amen. All right. Well, we'll end just a little early. Thank you guys for coming. Thank you guys for joining us online.